Hi, this is Ken Mary, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. So focus, people, focus. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of that which we like to call Focus on Metal. Hope you enjoyed last week's episode 500 with uh, Vivian Campbell. If you haven't uh, checked that out yet, be sure to head up to focusonmetal.net or to either one of our two iTunes channels and check that out as we celebrate episode 500 with Vivian Campbell giving us the top-to-bottom lowdown on his entire career. So what do we got in store for you this week? Well, I was sitting around over the weekend, and I got this crazy-ass idea. We've had this interview that has been in the vault for I don't know how long, and it's one of these ones where, for whatever reason, every so often, Richie's recording stuff screws up and doesn't record his voice, so we get half an interview. And the original thing we were going to do with this is punch him in. You guys would never know. We've done it a couple times before, and no one's ever picked up on it. But uh, this one, I had divided it all up, all ready for punching, and just with everything going on, it just never happened. It's been sitting out there, but it's a great interview with uh, Ken Barr, who is the author of We Are the Road Crew, Life on the Road and How I Got There. He's been out with all kinds of bands. So Richie did a great interview with Ken that we've never been able to air because, again, we've only had Ken and not Richie. So I decided, you know what, I'm not even going to do the punching thing. I'm just going to pretend I'm Richie. I'm going to kind of hear the context of what's going on with the answer, try to figure out what it was that Richie asked him, and uh, go ahead and put that in like a question so you basically have an interview, just a little bit of disjointed stuff here and there. There's a couple spots in there where I just clearly say, I'm just guessing what Richie asked about here, or it might be some landmark or some other thing that I have no idea what he's talking about, and I just throw it out there. But nonetheless, you get to hear some great stuff from a guy who was on the road for a lot of years with guys like Alice Cooper, Kiss, Stone Temple Pilots, all kinds of bands out there. And I just couldn't let this one sit in the vault for another week. I had to break it free. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as we talk with former roadie and author Ken Barr. Hey, metalheads, kick back. Relax, raise the horns, and stay tuned for another original Focus on Metal, Metal Side Chat, with your host, Scott Thompson. Hello, this is Ken. Hey, Ken, how you doing? I'm good, Richie. How are you, sir? Not too bad, and, uh, you know, been very much looking forward to talking to you uh, all about your uh, life on the road. That's good to hear. Now, I know from your description with the book that, you know, you talked about the fact that you spent probably more time out of the U.S. than in, but now that you are off the road for many years, where are you sitting now? Orlando, Florida. Ah, the warm end of the uh, of the coast there. Uh, we're up here in uh, wonderful, cold Boston. Oh, okay, right on the coast, too. All right, and right here is, of course, where Richie lets the cat out of the back, that even though he's sitting here in Boston, that he is originally from Ireland. Right on. That's where my family's from four generations ago. So with all the bands that you've worked with since, uh, you know, you started out in 1978, have you ever worked with uh, a band from Ireland? Um, no, uh, never as as their tech, no. But we had um, a band called Picture House open for Alice Cooper one, one leg of the tour. Amazing Irish. They're more of a pop band by their own uh, decree, but... I, I searched high and low and managed to find all their CDs. They are a great. I, well, they're a great band. Never mind being an Irish band. It doesn't matter. They're just great. But as far as you know, feel for my trade working for an Irish band, no, not not yet. I'd never say no. Okay. How about uh, you know just actually doing any kind of uh, any kind of tours at all in Ireland? You know, I know that there's you know not many that actually go there. But uh, have you actually been able to work with bands and uh, do tour dates in Ireland? Oh, absolutely. I toured, I toured Ireland uh, with Alice Cooper, with Kiss. Um, I think that, that may be it. But yeah, I've been there every tour. I, I did about six Alice tours, and every tour we were in, you know, uh, in Ireland. Yeah, I love it there. So obviously, Ken, we have you on the show this week to talk about the uh, the book you put out, 
We are the road crew, life on the road, and how I got there. And got to tell you, great stuff in there, great stories, and, and definitely a lot of bands you work with, and a pretty damn good read. Oh, well, thank you for that. So I've done, you know, local crew for, for a long time as well. I think you're about a year older than me, and, you know, there's a lot of different jobs in there, technical stuff, easy stuff, all that. As part of, uh, with the book, you're trying to also let people kind of have a little bit of insight uh, as to, you know, what that career is, what it's like being a roadie, kind of, you know, some of the aspects, the talents, the the personality stuff that you need to to have as a roadie? Or maybe to put it a different way that, you know, y- yeah, you could just kind of go in there and do your own thing, but you're not going to last very long, but you really have to have some kind of a clue to enable to uh, last long-term like you did. You know, people have, I, I've heard the expression, a dumb roadie. Oh, yeah, that's just a dumb roadie. They, they think that we're, you know, just friends of the band that are tagging along and too stupid to tie our own shoes. And what you've really got out there, especially now, you've got guys that are engineers designing moving trusses. You've got, you know, backline guys, you know, doing uh, complex trigger systems for, like, the drums. Um, you know, you've got electronics technicians out there, you know, that are troubleshooting guitar amps, guitar ribs, or tech units. It's not that dumb roadie. He may be wearing a pair of shorts and a Motley Crue t-shirt, but he's far from dumb. So when you look at the demographic of the average person that is going into to road work and maybe putting aside for a second, you know, bass techs and drum techs and guitar techs, do you think that a lot of the other people that are, that are out there in road crews are potentially... Um, you know, either frustrated musicians or just, you know, musicians that are kind of biding their time until they, they get a better gig or, or, you know, kind of what's your opinion on that whole demographic? You know, there, there may be a small percentage of that. Ninety-five percent of the guys out there are doing, they're chasing their passion. You know, you're not going to see an amazing light show done by a lighting director who wishes he was playing guitar. You're talking about a guy who went to school studied and learned all the, the principles and, and all the dynamics of it and became an artist with lights. You've got the same with, you know, with guys with sound. Um, you know, I, I have spoken recently with Robert Scoville, who is the front of house engineer, the sound engineer for Rush. He had done Tom Petty for years. He designed sound equipment when he's not on the road. His passion when he was 16 years old was audio. So, like I said, I would never discount it because I remember uh, I did um, Operation Rock and Roll, which was in 1991 with Alice Cooper, who I worked with, um, uh, Jews Priests, Metal Church, uh, Motorhead, and Dangerous Toys. And Glenn Tipton of, of Judas Priest, his guitar tech was his brother Gary, who was a great guitar player. And he had just decided he was sick of his job. Glenn invited him out. And yeah, I wouldn't call him a failed musician because he's still playing. And when he's home, he's playing. But he was, as you say, a, you know, a musician that would probably rather be on stage. That's the only instance I've ever seen. You know, guys are educating themselves in their chosen fields of passion and they're that's why the quality is going going so high. That's why there's breakthroughs in, in sound reinforcement and in lighting and in effects. You know, I mean, the past 10 years, the growth of it, you know, because people with a lot of passion, a lot of intelligence are pushing the envelope to be the best at what they do. And, uh, and that's that's what's really out there. You know, it just occurred to me that, you know, you're down there in, in Orlando, you know, Florida area. And, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, road crews that have been together for a long time. Obviously, Motorhead, they've been, you know, that road crew is together forever. But another been was, uh, of course, uh, Iron Maiden's crew. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you got several of the guys that live down there. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times when they're prepping for tours as well, they, they all convene over into Florida as well for doing tour prep. So uh, do you ever uh, ever familiar with any of their crew or ever run into any of the Maiden guys? Well, you know, um, I've met those guys a few times, and actually a guitar tech from Alice Cooper's camp, Kevin Batty Walsh, when they hired Yannick, he came in as Yannick's guitar tech, so I heard a lot of his stories. You know, I have met those guys, and... They turn up in a pair of jeans, a t-shirt, and a biker jacket. No pretension. They're, they all could buy, you know, buy and sell you know, anybody 50 times over. But they don't care about all that. What they care about is the music, and they care about the people. You know, I did um, 
there's like a convention down here in Florida about 10 years ago called Thunderfest, and Nico was the drummer. And I helped him set up his drums because I used to drum tech for Kiss, and he could not have been more appreciative. So I think that none of them have been affected by how big a rock star they are. They're just the regular lads playing down the corner pub. And I have, you know, I've heard that from a hundred people, how gracious they are and, you know, sure to say thank you. And they give a crap. And that's how you get a family. And Iron Maiden band and crew are family. And that's why they stay together because they've become family. So while we're uh, we're on the topic of Maiden, it just kind of popped into my head, and, you know, the the whole classic battle back in the day with uh, you know Ozzy's band and with with uh, Maiden and you know lights and stage and all that stuff, and it just brings to mind the whole classic thing about you know the 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 uh, headlining's roadies messing with the opening band stuff and you know maybe cutting their lights or pulling the plug or screwing around with guitars or amps or all that stuff. So you know, you know, when you were out there, when you were doing it, what was your experience with that? Well, here's the thing: it, 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 I, I dealt with that in the clubs. You know, when I was a kid, the band you were opening for would intentionally sabotage you, and out of just arrogance, more than anything. I think once you get up a little bit into the bigger rooms, there might be a bit of that going on, but. You know, here's the thing. The band, the headlining band are paying for the sound. They're paying for the lights. It's all out of their pocket. So they they want to use everything. But they don't want to, you know, the, the, the amount of sound equipment to be, you know, the, the, the surprise of it, the enjoyment of it, to be blown, you know, on the, on the support act who aren't paying a nickel for it. So... I I don't have a problem with it as long as they've got time to work out the sound. But that's not always the case either. A lot of times there's just no time. And that happens. And a lot of times support act front of house sound guys are not as experienced as maybe they could be. So there's a lot of different elements that go into it. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, in 2018 we're beyond the, the petty nonsense of sabotaging the opening band. but you know, I can't say that never happens because you just never know. But like I said, I can understand, you know, the, the headlining band wanting to hold back maybe half the PA system, but that doesn't mean it's not going to sound good. So if you're at a show that doesn't sound good, it could be a bunch of shenanigans from the headliner, of course, but it could be a, a, a sound man who's not up to scratch. It could be there was, just wasn't enough time to ring up the room. Some rooms are hard to mix. You know, every every gig is different, so there's no standard that's going to work. So there are a lot of elements that go into, you know, when you, you hear that. So, like I said, a lot of times it can't be helped. It's just, it, it's the nature of the business, it's the room, it's the acoustics. Every every night is a different challenge. So you really don't think there's a lot of, like, bad matchups up there with openers and headliners or just, you know, a, an opening band that the headliner just can't stand or, you know, vice versa? I don't really think it's that much. Um, most headliner bands have a say in who's going to open for them. And, you know, they, they bring along bands that are going to either make them sound good or bands that they have worked with before that are professional. I think very little, you know, it is the nonsense of, of the headlining band. I, I truly do. Or maybe I'm being naive, but, you know, I've, I've worked enough crews where you know, the support act didn't have a guitar tech, and I would do it for free. I would help them with their guitars. I've seen a lot of headlining band crews go out of their way to help out the support act. So, you know, no time, the room is different, and, and that's more the case than anything. Because, like I said, no band is going to bring out somebody that's going to blow them off the stage. They're just not. You know, they don't have to. If they're a headlining band, they can pretty much choose whoever's available in their price range. Um, so, like I said, I I stand by it. You know, it's just, it's, it's situational. It's, you know, it's just no time. You know, that's the life of the support act. You know, they get very little time to go set up, very little time to sound check, typically. And that's, that's why you work hard and you work your way up to being the headliner so that you can have the full sound check. You can use the full PA. 
it's just paying dues, I think. And it's unfortunate that, you know, there's a fan out there who may love the Support Act and they feel they're being cheated, and no one wants that. But, you know, like I say, when you've got, I mean, I, I worked for a band. It was um, the guys from Stone Temple Pilots with a different singer, and they called it Talk Show. Doors of the arena were 7 o'clock, and Aerosmith uh, sound checked right up till 7 o'clock. They would walk off stage, the fans would come in, and we'd be humping our amps up on stage trying to, you know, show's supposed to start at 7.30, and we're hauling amps up there at 7.05. And we made it happen. I doubt it sounded as good as it could have, but, you know, we gave our 100%, and that's just how it goes. And the guys in both bands were friends. It's just headliners get used to that cushion of taking their time. You're not going to rush me out. I want to hang around and take my time and be late for sound check and and all that. So, you know, I saw that end of it firsthand, and we just did the best we could. And you're ringing stuff out as you're playing songs. You're adjusting amps, and the sound guy is pulling his hair out because the channel went down. It just, you know, like I say, it's it's part of it. There's just no time. So, of course, one of the you know, the things people think about when you think about touring and about roadieing and all that stuff is, you know, living on the bus and, you know, crappy hotels and, and you know, bad tours and things like that. And, uh, you know, kind of, you know, what was you, what's your perspective on that, you know, coming out of where you were to, uh, you know, working up into stuff like, you know, working for Kiss and, and bands like that. And if memory serves right, you started off, I think, with a like a Debbie Gibson tour of all things. But, you know, kind of, you know, wh- where was your perspective on that? Because, you know, you know I know from, from me with, uh, you know, doing local crew, I would see stuff where, yeah, there was times when I'm a stagehand doing stuff, but there's other times when I'm doing more of a technician's job instead. And obviously, you know, you were on that technician's end of that. So, you know, again, kind of, you know, what's your take on it? Well, when I went from clubs on Long Island, I'm originally from New York on Long Island. And when I got my first tour, I, firstly, I couldn't believe the wages I was being paid. And just stagehands, stagehands knocked me out. I had people helping me lift my heavy stuff. I'd never had that before. Um, you know, the artists would rehearse when we were and I get paid for doing rehearsals. You know, like the treatment just, it, I, I was not prepared for it. Um, you know, four-star hotels on your days off, I'd never stayed in a nice hotel in my life. I was always at the cheap motel. So it was it was more than I could have dreamed of. It was a career I cherished. I, I loved it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you could not have prepared me for that. You could have knocked me over with a feather, you know, like I said, stagehands, good wages, I mean, fair treatment. I didn't have to have a day job anymore. You know, I used to work five nights a week in the clubs with the local bands, sometimes for no pay, just for the chance to network, the chance to learn. And I worked a day job at a used car lot changing oil and installing radios, and I literally wouldn't sleep from Wednesday to Sunday. You know, to be able to do... To be able to do a gig and then get a proper night's sleep, I was on, on cloud nine. I was... Like, like, because it was brutal doing the clubs, you know, and holding down a day job. So it was, uh, it was just, it was like paradise, you know, the transition was like, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, all of a sudden everything became color and it was all like, wow, this is where I want to be. So obviously, you know, just like, you know, musicians where you kind of get in the business and you don't really know about the business yet. And you, you hear a lot about that or you read a lot about that when, uh, you know, you read different bios or you listen to different podcasts and interviews and you think about, you know, artists out there that if you're like, wow, those guys had it made. But when you really dig into their story, you find out that a lot of what they, uh, you know, ended up with no money or, or bad deals and things like that is they just didn't really know about, about the music business. And obviously that translates over to, you know, being a technician on the road as well, or being, you know, any part of the road crew is the whole idea of, of knowing how to do that whole, let's call it road business. So, you know, so obviously you didn't just, you know, walk into this and know everything all at once. So, you know, how did you wade into knowing, you know, what the hell you needed to do and show in order to move ahead in uh, in doing this stuff in the industry? Well, I always, you know, whenever the local bands I was working for opened for like a national act, I would always hook up with their road crew, try and help them out and learn what I could from them because I knew 
I knew the, you know, the, the skills and the networking weren't there yet, but I had to build, you know, my, you know, base, my people who knew, who knew me, people who saw me as a hard worker. I used to have a, an expression to myself, and I would say it before every gig, treat today like we're at, we're at Madison Square Garden, and I treated every gig that way, and um, I knew there was a lot to learn, and I was open to it, and uh, you know, I was a, a guitar tech for many years for heavy metal bands, and my first break was drumming percussion, working for a pop singer. And I had a whole lot to learn, and I knew I needed to. So, you know, I was always open to it. And I would, you know, anybody breaking into the business, you know, if you're out there in the clubs, just learn as much as you can, you know. And those guys that are out there are out there because they know what they're doing, and that's how they got the work. So always, you know, always, I was always up for advice. I had a bit of piss and vinegar, you know, I mean, a little cocky myself, but I was still respectful of the the guys who were out there doing it full time. So, you know, just in your answer prior, you talked about the fact that, uh, you know, doing everything you did, you ended up being in at a position where you really never had to work a day job anymore because you were, you know, fully vested and in there and, and always doing things. But obviously, you, you know, tours don't last, you know, for a lifetime. So how is it that, you know, you're out there, you're on tour, uh, and you're able to know that uh, when you get off of there, that you're, you hopefully have got something else lined up? Well, I would start looking for my next gig the first day of the tour. Um, and I never really saw jealousy on, on a tour, like amongst the, the crew for, you know, whoever I was working for, because everybody, you know, was established and everybody already had their, you know, their networking and they knew what their next gig was. And typically about halfway through any tour, I already knew what my next gig was. In fact, you know, I have um, a work box, which was a big toolbox that was work on the road. And I ended up having to have a second one made because it would leapfrog to my next tour because they needed to ship it to Australia or something, and they would slow boat it. And then I'd have the one I was using, and that would get shipped to my house after the tour. And my my second uh, toolbox would meet me in Australia, and, you know, I'd carry on like that. So, jealousy? No, it's I am more of a brotherhood out there, you know? You're in a different situation every day. And you're far from home, which does wear on you. You're far from the people you care about. And, you know, my days, we didn't have Skype. We didn't have laptops. So you're more distant. Um, you know, I had a fa I, I would fax the people back home because that was the only affordable way to contact them from out of the country. And, you know, you just may do. But, um, like I said, jealousy, no. Brotherhood, absolutely. I know that I've had times where either, you know, doing local crew and you sign on for one thing just because maybe you want the cash or whatever, and you've signed on on that, and then something else pops in and you're like, oh, you know, I really would love to have done that one instead. Or, you know, same thing with, with you know, playing in a band as well where, you you know, you commit, you book into a club, and then you get like a great opening slot for a much bigger band or something like that. And you're like, oh, crap, I've, I've committed to this thing already. So, uh, you know, ever have any any kind of instances with that, you know, kind of thing? You get a collision of, you know, you you offer one thing, you hook up with something else, and, and now you've got to make a tough decision? Yeah. Um, I had been working for Stone Temple Pilots, and they had taken a couple years off because their singer had his, I'll call them health issues out of respect. And... Uh, Alice Cooper was getting ready to go back out on the Brutal Planet tour. This was in 2000. And I had arranged, you know, I was going to be a guitar tech, and uh, I think I did keyboards as well on that one. And FTP, Stone Temple Pilots, called about two days after I agreed to do the Alice Cooper tour and asked me to come out with them again. And I would have given anything to go, but I had to say no. I was already committed to... Yeah, at that point, the Cooper organization were family to me. I'm part of the family, and I remain a part of the family. I still see them every time they come through town. But I hated turning down FTP because I'd been their guy for three, four years at that point. And this was, you know, Scott was doing better with his addiction, and I, they were going out to prove that they could still do it, and I wanted to be a part of that. But, you know... Tours just, you know, sometimes they overlap and you just can't. So, yeah, I regret that one. Just curious, have you seen the uh, the documentary Hired Gun? 
No. Oh, wow. You should check that out. It's a really cool documentary all about, uh, you know, different guys in the industry that uh, consider themselves to be hired guns. I'm pretty sure that it's still on Netflix. Just, uh, you know, do a search for a hired gun. Oh, I'm sorry. You said hired gun. I, 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 mis- I misheard you. My hearing's not great. I have seen hired gun and I do like, did like the movie. Yeah. Well, in the movie, they do have some focus on, you know, different guys that have played with the coop and just, you know, wondering if, you know, looking at that and seeing, you know, you're, you're working for a band and you could have, you know, you're working for one guitar player one day and then suddenly that guy is gone and you got some new guy that comes in and, and is there ever any kind of issues with changeovers and things like that? Or I guess to put it in a different way, you know, you talk about being part of that family. So when you have that thing where maybe somebody wants their own guy in the family instead of you, you know, do you have, uh, for lack of a better term, Papa Coop stepping up and, uh, you know, saying, uh, saying, you know, Ken's the guy and uh, that's just how it's going to be. He absolutely has. And from the 1990 tour to the 91 tour, they changed out guitar players and the guitar player they hired. They said, well, we've got your guitar tech, it's Kenny Barr. And he said, well, I've got my guy. And they said, well, we have our people. And the guy said, well, then I can't do the tour. And they said, okay, we'll get another guitar player. And suddenly he backed up and, you know, the coupe was serious. I was was part of the family. You know, oftentimes his wife travels. She's part of the show. I saw them about a year ago. And again, wonderful people. Glad to see you. You know, Coop took time before the show out to see me, and, and I brought someone to meet him. And gracious, cordial people. And yeah, a class act, class act. And everyone is there, you know, uh, the management people, like I said, the family. I think a lot of the crew that are on there now have been there close to 15 years or more. Because he works hard, he works steady, he works more than anybody else I know. He, especially now, he's got two bands, his Alice Cooper show and the Hollywood Vampires. He works about 10 months or more a year and does the charity work. You know, in December, he's got his uh, Hard Rock Foundation or something like that. And, um, you know, they've, they've got stuff at home that they do for the local area for underprivileged, and they're just wonderful people. It's kind of crazy when you get down to it, you think about all the stuff, you know, he's doing that you just described, you know, multiple bands, you know, all the community work, all that good stuff as well. And then you have to ask yourself, you know, how does he also do all of that and golf? Uh, at least at least 18 holes a day, uh, 36 if time and weather permitted, uh, every day. At, oh, you know, people ask, well, how can you keep doing it? Well, here's a day in Alice Cooper's life, at least, you know, what I surmise from having known him for 30 years. He wakes up in a five-star hotel, has breakfast, is picked up by either a local promoter or the local golf club rep, taken to a gorgeous golf course, 18 holes of golf, 36 if he can, back to the hotel, you know, maybe a light dinner, off to the gig for a sound check, and then a show, doing the songs that he loves that he wrote. So yeah, he's um, he's he knows what he wants, and he he's you know family first, friends first, and just you know he's got it down. You know he's he's living the life he wants, and he's making a lot of people happy. I brought someone to see an Alice Cooper show, and she was a bit dodgy about it. And all right, and she decided I've never seen a show like that before. She said that is the greatest show I have ever seen. Yeah. Because Alice is good. There's nobody better. He is a legend. And, um, and like I said, the quality of people. You know, I've known these kids since they were little. You know, Calico, who is also sometimes in the show. Um, you know, family first. You know, his family are everything to him. And, you know, Cheryl, his wife, is one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. I mean, the two of them. And, you know, that's the coup. And he couldn't care less. He doesn't, he's aware he's a legend, but he doesn't let it affect him. He's still a regular, regular human being, you know. On the 1990 tour, we were flying home from Australia and we had to stop in Hawaii. And that's where his manager of 40, 50 years or more, Chef Gordon, lives on Maui. So they said, hey, we'll put everybody up for, um, you know, for a week on Maui as vacations as a thank you. And they did. And Shep had open house at his place, and, you know, there we are sitting at a table playing poker with Alice Cooper. 
And, you know, it's just, it was no, you know, rock star. It was the coop. It was ace. You know, that's why we call them the, the coop, you know? There's there's no attitude. There's a, just like the Maiden guys, you know, no attitude, no affectation to being a rock star. Just they're doing what they love and they're good at it, and that's it. Life is good. You know, we're kind of living in this golden age of uh, rock and metal biographies and all that good stuff, and you, you definitely hear, you know, in various uh, you know books that you read out there about people that you know end up getting mistreated on the road. Or, you know, they just kind of have bad gigs or they just, you know, they just feel like they're in shitty situations or anything like that. It seems like you persevered, you know, for a lot of years out there doing stuff. And, and did you ever really experience any of that stuff of just, you know, kind of not being treated quite the way you would feel you uh, would be expected to be treated? You know, maybe it was just luck on my part. And I also, I did work for a lot of the same bands a year after year. I worked for Kiss for four years. The Coop, I started in 89, and I did my last tour in 2000. I've never had anyone want, expect to be treated differently. I've never had anyone, you know, push me around or mistreat me in any way. I've, you know, had people that were just good human beings, you know? Um I mean, it, it's hard being out on the road. You have to give everybody a little bit of space now and again. But I, I have seen, you know, performers or artists who I would not want to work with, but I never have never had to. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll call that one a win. You know, I, I work for genuine human beings that cared about me, you know, and uh, and cared that, you know, and appreciated me doing a good job. Two times in my life, I heard Gene Simmons say, Kenny, you're always good. You do a great job. No one, Gene doesn't compliment everybody because you're supposed to do your job. You know, we're being paid, but, you know, the over and above was appreciated by the monster. That's one of the things we call Gene, the monster. And um, so I can't ask for better than that, you know. Uh, so like I said, it's out there, but I never dealt with it, so. Besides the longevity that you've had in the industry, is some of this also maybe just some kind of networking as well? You know, you talk about people with, you know, regular 95 jobs, and a lot of times you can go up and you look at Glassdoor and a lot of sites like that, get insights into the company. Obviously, you can't get insights into a touring company so much, but, uh, you know, is there kind of that networking out there? So perhaps you have a little bit better idea about whether or not you want to take a particular gig? Yeah, there were, there were, you know, there were artists and, and people out there, and, you know, I, I get offers and I'd be like, I call whoever just quit working for them and it'd be like, why did you quit? Oh, dude, don't take it. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. Nothing's ever right. All right, well, thank you for that. You know, because we look out for each other. We're a network, the road guys, and we look out for each other and everybody knows everybody. You get to a, a certain level and, you know, you know that, you know, Batty used to work for Motorhead, so, you know, give a call, ask what the tour's going to be like, you know, or why aren't you doing it? And, um, and, and, you know, that's what you do. So yeah, you prepare yourself. And if you don't have work and you're, you know, you've got to gotta take a gig you'd rather not take, you just bump up the price and say, okay, well, I'll do it for this much. Otherwise I'm not interested. And, and you just grit your teeth and power through it until something better comes along. You know, you just do it. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. You know, if there's nothing else out there, but like I said, I was fortunate, you know, so I never never was in that situation, but it does happen. Is there a particular country that you really like doing tours in? Two, actually. Uh, Japan, I love it. I love the culture. I love the people. And Ireland, you know, um, it's where, you know, my great-grandparents great came, came from. And, uh, you know, even though I'm so far removed, I'm not one of those drunken New Yorkers who... There's more Irish than somebody who just left Dublin, but I just, I respected it's where my family came from. And I always, I would try to do a bit of research and there was just never time. Plus, you know, there were no computers or at least, you know, laptops and whatnot to, to make it easier. I'd love to go back and do a bit because, you know, that's where you come from. And uh, I respect it and I, and I did love it and I love the opportunity to be there. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of bands from, from Ireland. I love Christy Moore. I love the Pogues. I mean, you know, there's just so much good music. And I thought that was, that's, in, you know, from every country, really. I would always try and pick up, like, you know, who's a good local band or who, you know, and find CDs and, and get what I could because 
You know, there's so much music around the world that you'll just never get the chance to hear because it's just so much. So I would try to offset that as best I could. But yeah, uh, I listen to Christy Moore like, you know, every weekend. I don't know if you're familiar or not. He's not metal, but he's just. So I'm assuming in here that Richie asked about a particular artist or album or something like that, but uh, I have no idea what you de- what he uh, asked about. Yeah. I thought his uh, Live at the Point CD is one of my absolute favorites, and it's just incredible. And then again here, based on the context of the answer, I'm pretty sure Richie probably talked about some classic venue, probably a theater-type thing in Dublin, but I'm um, just guessing. I think I played there with Alice like back in mid-'90s, I believe. And I'm guessing follow-up statement by Richie about said venue. Yeah, yeah, it's a good place, good place. But, you know, there are, I love all the old theaters. You know, that was another thing, you know, the architecture and the way some of them were set up, you know, with the stage manager, Buck Callbox on stage right, and then the dressing room downstairs, and the stage manager running the show, ringing you up in your room and say, okay, you're only 10, let's go. You know, those old buildings are awesome, and they resonate like nothing else, man. And here I think Richie's probably asking about, you know, what it's like as far as going into an old theater, like what uh, Ken just described, versus going into some big modern venue. And I can tell you, too, from my own experience that, you know, there's great old theaters in Boston, and some of them there, uh, they are kind of really weird when you try to do a load-in on there. But uh, they're always fun gigs nonetheless. Well, a lot of the old theaters were not set up for what we bring. You know, a lot of times, I mean, you're talking about theaters that were built when, you know, a man might bring his saxophone or the biggest thing would be, you know, a piano that you would bring in. Now, between the road cases and and the the trussing for the lighting, it was a challenge just getting the stuff in. There was one, like it was in England, and I, I can't remember... I can't remember which theater, but the load-in was on the third floor. We had a block and tackle every road case up from an alleyway, up onto a platform and in every case. And it, it took everything we had, and we barely made the show, but we made the show. So once you're in them, they're wonderful. But sometimes the access is, you know, uh, a 100-yard push over cobblestone, which just takes forever and beats up your cases. A lot of the cases don't fit through the doors because, you know, the, the equipment and, and such. So the challenges are there as well because once you get in and have your PA up and, and you get that warm acoustics, that's awesome. But, you know, when you're hefting stuff up from a half a mile away and, you know, roping it up, it's like, oh, God, I hope my road case doesn't fall or I won't know, don't know how I'll do a show. And, and stadiums have challenges. I think every building has the potential for challenges, you know. But you, know, you go into a stadium, you know what to expect, and you know you you can get your equipment where it needs to be. If you need extra stagehands, you get them. Um, and, you know, the sound guys have already, you know, typically you're using people that have already played this building, and, you know, they know exactly where they want the speakers and how, you know, how they're going to sound. Um so, yeah, I think, like I said, every building's got challenges, but, you know, to me, every building that brings something different to the game, you know, it's always interesting to see how it'll come out. Um, like, what, like Christie at Live at the Point, it sounds wonderful, sonically. I wish I'd been there. So what about local unions? I know here in Boston, that's a big deal, definitely. With some venues, there are total union shops where there's very little that, you know, a local crew guy can do, and there's others where you can pretty much do anything. But uh, definitely a lot of union stuff going on here. Did you run into a lot of uh, union stuff when you were uh, out on the road? Some areas um, some areas are a bit union-heavy, and they, they seem like if I start opening up my cases, they see that as me taking the job away from someone else that could be working, and they do get a, a bit irritable, irate. Um, if it's a union-heavy building, you, you know it is, and you know you just it's a hands-off. That's what they call it. It's a hands-off gig. So, and the, you know, the local crew, they go out of respect. You know, you, you tell them what you want, where you want it. Yes, you, know, you, you call them sir, you say please, you say thank you. And you get through it. But yeah, a lot of times there's, this is our building, you're going to do it our way. And you can't win. It's a fight you can't win. Anybody that's been around, you know, the the industry knows you can't win. So you just go with the flow, you grit your teeth. Yes, sir, please, thank you. That's awesome. I appreciate it. And you just do it. 
And it's, it's you know, it's, sl- it's slower to do it that way. But, you know, some days that's just how it goes, and you just do your best because, you know, you get those guys mad at you. You know, you just get through it and, and get on to the next gig because, you, you know, you make the, the crew angry. They're gonna. They could walk off the job. I had that once at the Beacon Theater with the Stone Temple Pilots. The loadout crew decided they weren't happy about something or other that had happened, and they stood on the sidewalk and watched us load our trucks without stagehands. And they laughed because they were getting paid because it was in their contract. And that's you know, that's, and there was nothing we could do about it. And they got full wage for it. You know, as they're cursing us, throwing beer bottles and whatnot. It's like there's just you know. But you know those gigs, those gigs get a rep, uh, a, a, uh, I'm forgetting the word now, a reputation. And, you know, so oftentimes tours will avoid them, you know? Got to ask you about, nah, you know, outside gig experience. Have any of those just nightmare outdoor gigs that uh, you'll never just, you'll never forget? You know, we, we played a couple with Alice. We played a couple of state fairs, and we played one in uh, New Zealand with a tarp roof. With I was moving my road cases and my guitar racks around on stage trying to find a spot that wasn't leaking. And the water's... Oh, you know what? I've got an even better one for you. An Army Stadium... Oh, where was it? I'm trying to remember. Um, but it was in, you know, uh, Eastern Europe... And the rain was coming in sideways. The buzzes in the sound system were so bad because there was no good grounding of power. There was no food because we were so far out of town. And we did the show. And the coop was out there getting rained on. You know, and he had you know these band guys twenty years younger than him, kind of huddling by their amps. And Coop was out in front of the stage did not cut a song and he was soaking wet and he did a, a show that these people just could not have asked for better. And with the coop, that's the thing you do. You're doing the show period. We are doing a show. We had one, it was in Cleveland in the mid nineties. We had warrant docking and slaughter opening for us. And again, the rain's coming in sideways and the coop was going to do the show. You know, we had lightning like, a mile away, it was, it was it was a rough one, and the the three support bands said, "No, we're not going on. That's it." So the promoter came to our stage manager and said, "If if I can get the three opening bands to play like three songs each, we can do the show. I've held up my deal, and I won't have to refund tickets." And the stage manager said, "Well, why are you telling me this? Well, if you guys can get them to do three songs each." So we're like, oh, he, so we, you know, we worked out something. Went in the dressing room of the first band and said, you're doing three songs. And uh, like, nope, no, we're not. Like, you're doing three songs or we're doing three of your songs without you. Either way, this is happening. And we did all three bands halfway. They all went out there. They all were big boys. They did their shows in the rain. And then somebody old enough to be their dad and then some went out and did a full rock show and didn't cut a song. He showed those kids how he showed those kids how it's done. You know the audience. The audience work hard. They work, you know, jobs. Just, and a lot of them, you know, they they may save their money and have only one thing they can afford to do this year. And my one thing is going to be see Alice Cooper. Well, you know what? If you came here, the least we can do is stay here and do a full show. And that's what the coop does. He, I've never been with him where he canceled the show ever. We we rolled up to this one in, uh, I think it was Germany, I, I can't remember where exactly, and it was a, not only was it a circus tent that was old and out of use that the promoter had found, it was condemned. It was not fit to be in. So, yeah. And, and so crew that were new to the Alice Cooper organization were like, oh, well, you know, once they cancel this show, we can go and do a picnic here and do this. And there are those of us that had worked with the coop before, I said, nope, we're doing it. They're like, there's no bloody way in hell uh, we're doing it. And at noon, we got the phone call. The city council bought a one-day insurance policy, and in we went. And it was a full-on rock and roll show, kicking butt and taking names. And it was one of the best group shows I've ever seen. So obviously, you've done a ton of stuff with Eric Singer. Uh, you know, what's your what's your history with Eric? 
Well, we were friends first. I knew him before I teched for him. Um, he respected me as a tech. I respected him. He saw me you know, get doing guitars and, and keyboards. And the first Alice Cooper tour he did, his uh, drum tech wasn't really up to scratch. So if there was a problem, I was usually the one to fix it. Um, we have similar interests and mutual respect. And that, I think, has been the cornerstone of our friendship. Uh, you know, I mean, Eric, Eric is family. Uh, I don't say that about everybody. I say it about a lot of people, but uh, Eric is family. And, um, you know, we, the last time we spoke, his dad was a musician. And my dad was a wannabe musician that used to hang out with Dizzy Gillespie. And, we, you know, we spent a half hour talking about our dads on the phone, you know. Bands didn't come into the conversation because that's not our whole world. So, I, I, you know, I respect Eric. I'll always be his friend. Um, you know, he's just a, he's a good guy. He cared about me. You know, when, uh, he, when he got the Kiss gig, we were still on tour with Alice in Europe. And he, he asked me if I would, you know, go, we'll go out to dinner. And I, I knew he was going to ask. And he did. He said, you know, I'm going out with Kiss and I'd like you to be my tech. I said, absolutely. And, and we started making plans for the drum kit and, and all the things that were going to have to happen. And then when the tour finished, you know, we both went home for the holidays. And then in January, I uh, went out to his house and stayed with him for a few days. And we worked out a few things. I met the people that provide him his drums, his cymbals. I got to know everybody I'd be dealing with. And, um, you know, he, he knew I was given 100% every day. And I knew he was giving 100%. And professionally, you know, of course, we respect each other. And like I said, we just hit it off, you know. He likes muscle cars. He plays for a band I grew up listening to. So, you know, it's it's a lot of common ground and, and we both give a crap, you know. In a business where a lot of in a business where a lot of people are full of crap and don't give a crap, Eric's a genuine person. You know, what you see is what you get. He'll speak his mind and um and like I say he's a good guy, you know. My guy. It was he easily could have you know, all the top drum techs were, were trying to get the gig when he got the KISS gig. And he said no to a lot of good people. And he held, uh, there was one time they were in South America, I couldn't do it. And he held that gig for me. He had a friend cover it so that the gig wasn't given away permanently. So, you know, the guy's never done anything but wonderful things for me. So, you know, he's, uh, he's family and he's my friend and I'm proud to call him that. So obviously you've been a lot of large-scale tours with some really incredible staging and effects and all that stuff. Ever have some of those things happen where just something with the staging just goes awry? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of figured. Can you give us a highlight? Well, actually, there was one time. Um, did you see the Revenge Tour, or have you seen pictures of it? Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Okay. Well, our, at the very back of our set was the Statue of Liberty, and the outer casing of it would blow off, and it would be a Terminator underneath. Well, we played a, a gig in North Carolina where the ceilings were so low, they couldn't use the low, the bottom base unit of the Statue of Liberty. So they had to cut, like, you know, the, 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 the legs on it that would hold it in, in place and just kind of prop it up on its next section as best they could because there just wasn't room. Well, what happened was it wasn't meant to be on that section. There was no stability. It started falling. And what was it going to hit? The laser unit behind Eric and I, which was high voltage, and Eric and I, they pulled out. They, I didn't know this part. Well, you know, I, I knew something was going on, but I'm so busy because I had so many cues. I, I, it was hard to leave the drum riser. But this thing was toppling over, and it was coming right at Eric and I. <laughs> they got a forklift and put a forklift behind it to try and stabilize it. They're grabbing ropes. They're doing all kinds of shenanigans back there. And Eric finally said, you know, just just go look. And I ran over, and I'm like, ugh, I'm going to lie to him. I'm going to lie so bad. I went running back up on the drum kit. Nope, it's all good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Based on that last story, I just got to ask, any uh, any serious injuries out on the road during uh, your time out there? Um, I, you know, ankle sprain, wrist sprain. Um, I, I think I cracked a few ribs once when I ended up in the audience. I was a, somebody was throwing steel tip darts and knives at us, and I figured out who it was, and I went in after him, and I was got the crap kicked out of me by you know, just everybody before I could get back out of there. 
So I think a few cracked ribs on that one. Sprains, cracked rib, you know, sore back, normal stuff. Nothing, nothing serious. Well, I'm surprised. That's pretty good. You know, you were out there for that long, and you really didn't uh, didn't really nail yourself good, especially with some of the situations with you know some of those older theaters and things, or the way you're trying to shove yourselves into things. But uh, yeah, that's that's cool that you really. Uh, really didn't do that about uh how about how about damage from fans you know maybe uh some inadequate security or something like that and then you kind of get the unexpected thing there you know any kind of any uh history with that you know some gigs the security are, are there because they want cool in the t-shirt and they're not doing their job you know you can always tell us an experienced security guy from a guy who's just making a couple dollars uh, I'd see, you know, I used to be the first line of defense on Alice's tours because I was fast and I, you know, I'm six foot tall. So I, you know, it's not as though I'm a midget and these guys would get past security like it was nothing. And I'm grabbing them and dragging them off. And, you know, um, security's changed a lot now, especially metal detectors. It's a lot safer. Cause like I said, you know, like people be throwing lit firecrackers at you. Um, you know, knives, steel tip darts. I mean, it was crazy. So you, all that's gone. You know, you can't bring explosives in. You can't bring anything, any weapons in. It's all screened. Um, and I think security's gotten better just because of the way the world is. You have to. You know, you want to call yourself a security guy, you've got to, you know, you can't be smiling at the pretty girls trying to get lucky, And you know, when mayhem and the, the barricades breaking and things are, you know, going sideways. Interesting you talk about, you know, whether or not, you know, security is qualified and stuff like that. And, you know, you just never really know, uh, you know, kind of what's out there and, you know, who's available at the venues where you're going to and things like that. And you just think about, uh, you know, people we've lost uh, because of security, just, you know, maybe not being watchful, not doing their job, not understanding their job, that kind of thing. You know, you think about, you know, somebody like Dime. I think so. I think so. Uh, that never should have been able to happen. And, uh, yeah, that um, you know, a loaded pistol coming into a club. Are you kidding me? And, and but the, you know, like I say, the shape of the world now. Yeah, that that changed things. That was you know was part of the catalyst for it for change. And um, you know, we are safer for it. It's a hell of a cost, but I just you know, it makes me sad because I'm afraid it's going to go too far. You know, and. Uh, you know, we need to be safe, but you give up so much of, of your yourself to do that, you know. Um, I just I just hope that we can find a, a spot where we're safe without, you know, living in a police state type thing, you know. We don't want that either. All right, let's swing it back to a brighter note. You know, it's kind of going down a dark path here. Don't want to do that. So I asked a bit ago about, you know, favorite place that you've played and stuff, but what about... Uh, you know, with all the tours you've done, is there one tour that you can say, yeah, that is definitely was uh, my favorite tour I ever did? Uh, Alice Cooper, 1990, the trash tour. That um, The band and crew were, were such family. We were all about the same age. We were all fired up. We were all full of ourselves. And it was a, a tour that was going around the world and playing some nice places. We were working for the coop. It doesn't get better than that. I've always said it, the high point. Not, not to disrespect any other tour I did, because those were all good, too. But this just, you know, all of us were at the beginnings of our career, um, and there were a lot of heavy hitters on, on that tour. Uh, Al Petrelli, who's been with Megadeth, um, he, he's been in Trans-Siberian Orchestra for years. Uh, Derek Sherinian, who plays with uh, Sons of Apollo, he played with Dream Theater. Eric Singer, of course, you know, and like my friend Batty went on to become Yannick Burr's guitar tech. You know, everybody, band and crew went on to to much more. But, you know, for that one year, we were bro- band of brothers completely. You know, a day off was like, you know, an 8 a.m. phone call. All right, what are we doing today? And, and it, we'd be out there. We were just, it, were, it was really so. And the shows were something to be proud of, you know. Uh, the Coop was, Coop was, you know, really firing it up. His record was doing great. And, uh, the, you know, because of that, the gigs were, you know, bigger and nicer. So, yeah, Alice Cooper, Trash Tour, 1990, I would, without, without a doubt. Damn, I won't even argue about that without a doubt statement, because you just came out with that so damn fast. I think that speaks a lot for how good that tour was in your life. 
So we obviously have you on primarily to talk about the the book you put out, We Are the Road Crew, Life on the Road and How I Got There. But beyond that book, is there anything else that, that you've published? Yeah, actually, uh, I, I released something a little over a month ago called 33 Wednesdays, and it's something different. Uh, it's about a relationship from a different point of view, a relationship that fell apart. Um, I have written about the Icelandic Yule Lads, how Iceland uh, celebrates Christmas. Uh, obviously, I was dating an Icelandic woman for a while there. <laughs> so um, I did that. And, uh, you know, I've always got different things I'm working on. I've done a few horror movies. I've, I do short films. Uh, you can YouTube my, my uh, channel is Ken Bar Films. And I express myself in different ways. But, yeah, I love to write. and. Um, I'll be doing a book on the lost Yule Lads. Well, I've already got the, uh, the verb, verbiage done. It's just a matter of getting with an illustrator at this point. Um, yeah, not everything comes out rock and roll because I've got a you know varied interest, but I'd like to do another book on my years on the road just because I've learned a lot in the 10 years since I wrote that book. And I'd like to expand on it. I'd like to do more pictures, maybe a bit of in- input from with different people that were there, you know, so that, that will be coming in the years to come because, you know, that, that, that 20 years I spent was as good as it gets, you know, um, I I regret leaving the road and it's just, you know, I celebrate it every chance I get. So would you ever consider getting back out there again? No, I would actually, I've been, uh, Last year, uh, there was almost an opportunity, but it didn't work out, and I had agreed to do it. Um, it would have to be a, a decent length tour, but yeah, I, I would. I think I have one more in me. I, I really feel that. I'm in a different place in my life now, and um, I, I would like to do one more, you know, one last hurrah. So we'll see, we'll see what comes in the, in the coming year, you know, maybe been writing on my days off and then doing guitar tech or stage manager or whatever but yeah I would I would definitely like, definitely like to do one more there's still a little gas in the, in the gas tank there I hear you brother I get asked that all the time too about what I consider going out with the band again you know getting out hitting the hitting the clubs and all that good stuff and uh, you know yeah, sometimes I think about you know whether I'd want to go back and do that again same deal still got some gas in there still got some desire to do it so yeah like you we'll see but anyways, good talking to you, and uh, you know, great book. Thanks for putting that out, and uh, thanks for taking so much time to uh, talk with us right here on Focus on Metal. And hopefully, we haven't interrupted your day too much. You go out and have a good rest of it. Oh, absolutely, you too. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. And you know, hopefully, uh, we'll have you back on again sometime. Well, it was good meeting you. And anytime you want to do this, obviously, you can see I can talk. Uh, you get me going. So, yep, exactly why I'm talking about wanting to have you come back on. Yeah, I'm sure you got a lot more stories to tell as we kind of just even broaden the scope from beyond the book. So again, uh, you know, have yourself a good rest of the day. And again, thanks very much for coming on and talking to us here at Focus on Metal. You too. Take care now. Bye. And there you go. At long, long last, our uh, interview with author Ken Barr. And primary reason we had him on is that he put out the book, We Are the Road Crew, Life on the Road and How I Got There. And, uh, you know, urge you to go out there and pick that one up for yourselves. Hear all about uh, Ken's tales on the road and more. And, Ken, I apologize profusely for it being so goddamn long for us between when we interviewed you and when we finally got this thing on the air, but, you know, like I said initially at the beginning, you know, my whole intent was I cut this thing up. I had it all sliced and diced, had all Ken stuff, all good. It's going to have Richie come down. It's going to be really fancy, put a little bit crush on his voice and all that. So it wasn't clear. It sounded like telephone, kind of the usual kind of uh, production crap and, and then put it out and people would never even know that we had issues and uh, just, you know, things intruded. And uh, just got pushed in the back burner and the back burner. And this week I decided, you know what? No more. I'm doing it. I'm just going to do it some other crazy ass way. And so there you have it. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And again, Ken, we are so sorry that it took us so damn long. Please uh, don't let this tardiness, you know, kind of make it like I'm never going on talking those assholes again. Because I know you got more great stuff that we would love to have you talk about. 
So that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. Continue to be safe out there. And like we've been telling you each and every week for God knows how many years, until we talk to you again next time, remember... Go home.